Section 26 of The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Five Pack. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. Edited by Henry Festing Jones. Chapter 20 First Principles. Part 1. The Baselessness of Our Ideas. That our ideas are baseless, or rotten at the roots, is what few who study them will deny. But they are rotten in the same way as property is robbery, and property is robbery in the same way as our ideas are rotten at the roots. That is to say, it is a robbery, and it is not. No title to property, no idea, and no living form, which is the embodiment of idea, is indefeasible, if search be made far enough. Granted that our thoughts are baseless, yet they are so in the same way as the earth itself is both baseless and most firmly base, or again most stable and yet most in motion. Our ideas, or rather I should say our realities, are all of them like our gods, based on superstitious foundations. If man is a macrocosm, then cosmos is a megalanthrope, and that is how we come to anthropomorphize the deity. In the eternal pendulum swing of thought, we make God in our own image, and then make him make us, and then find it out, and cry, because we have no God, and so on, over and over again, as a child has new toys given to it, tires of them, breaks them, and is disconsolate, till it gets new ones which it will again tire of, and break. If the man who first made God in his own image had been a good model, all might have been well, but he was impressed with an undue sense of his own importance, and, as a natural consequence, he had no sense of humor. Both these imperfections he has fully and faithfully reproduced in his work, and with the result we are familiar. All our most solid and tangible realities are but as lies that we have told too often henceforth to question them. But we have to question them sometimes. It is not the sun that goes round the world, but we who go round the sun. If anyone is for examining and making requisitions on title, we can search too, and can require the title of the state as against any other state, or against the world at large. But suppose we succeed in this, we must search further still, and show by what title mankind has ousted the lower animals, and by what title we eat them, or they themselves eat grass, or one another. See what quicksands we fall into if we wade out too far from the terra firma of common consent. The error springs from supposing that there is an absolute right, or absolute truth, and also from supposing that truth and right are any the less real for being not absolute but relative. In the complex of human affairs, we should aim not at a supposed absolute standard, but at the greatest coming togetherness or convenience of all our ideas and practices. That is to say, at their most harmonious working with one another. Hit ourselves somewhere we are bound to do. No idea will travel far without colliding with some other idea. Thus, if we pursue one line of probable convenience, we find it convenient to see all things as ultimately one, 
That is, if we insist rather on the points of agreement between things than on those of disagreement. If we insist on the opposite view, namely, on the points of disagreement, we find ourselves driven to the conclusion that each atom is an individual entity, and that the unity between even the most united things is apparent only. If we did not unduly insist upon, that is to say, emphasize and exaggerate, the part which concerns us for the time, we should never get to understand anything. The proper way is to exaggerate first one view and then the other, and then let the two exaggerations collide, but good-temperedly, and according to the laws of civilized mental warfare. So, we see first all things as one, then all things as many, and, in the end, a multitude in unity, and a unity in multitude. Care must be taken not to accept ideas which, though very agreeable at first, disagree with us afterwards, and keep rising on our mental stomachs as garlic does upon our bodily. Imagination 1. Imagination depends mainly upon memory, but there is a small percentage of creation of something out of nothing with it. We can invent a trifle more than can be got at by mere combination of remembered things. 2. When we are impressed by a few only, and perhaps only one of a number of ideas which are bonded pleasantly together, there is hope. When we see a good many, there is expectation. When we have had so many presented to us that we have expected confidently, and the remaining ideas have not turned up, there is disappointment. So the sailor says in the play, Here are my arms, here is my manly bosom, but where's my Mary? 3. What tricks imagination plays? Thus, if we expect a person in the street, we transform a dozen impossible people into him, while they are still too far off to be seen distinctly. And, when we expect to hear a footstep on the stairs, as, we will say, the postman's, we hear footsteps in every sound. Imagination will make us see a billiard hall as likely to travel farther than it will travel, if we hope that it will do so. It will make us think we feel a train begin to move as soon as the guard has said, All right, though the train has not yet begun to move if another train alongside begins to move exactly at this juncture. There is no man who will not be deceived. And we omit as much as we insert. We often do not notice that a man has grown a beard. 4. I read once of a man who was cured of a dangerous illness by eating his doctor's prescription, which he understood was the medicine itself. So, William Sefton Morehouse, in New Zealand, imagined he was being converted to Christianity by reading Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, which he had got by mistake for Butler's analogy on the recommendation of a friend, but it puzzled him a good deal. 5. At Ivy Hatch, while we were getting our beer in the inner parlor, there was a confused melee of voices in the bar, amid which I distinguished a voice saying, Imagination will do any bloody thing almost. I was writing Life and Habit at the time, and was much tempted to put this passage in. Nothing truer has ever been said about imagination. Then the voice was heard addressing the barman and saying, I suppose you wouldn't trust me with a quart of beer, would you? In experience. Kant says that all our knowledge is founded on experience. But each new small increment of knowledge is not so founded, and our whole knowledge 
is made up of the accumulation of these small new increments, not one of which is founded upon experience. Our knowledge, then, is founded not on experience, but on inexperience. For where there is no novelty, that is to say, no inexperience, there is no increment in experience. Our knowledge is really founded upon something which we do not know, but it is converted into experience by memory. It is like species. We do not know the cause of the variations whose accumulation results in species, and any explanation which leaves this out of sight ignores the whole difficulty. We want to know the cause of the effect that inexperience produces on us. Ex nihilo nihil fit. We say that everything has a beginning. This is one side of the matter. There is another according to which everything is without a beginning. Beginnings and endings also being but as it were steps cut into a slope of ice without which we could not climb it. They are for convenience and the hardness of the hearts of men who make an idol of classification, but they do not exist apart from our sense of our own convenience. It was a favorite saying with William Sefton Morehouse in New Zealand that men cannot get rich by swabbing knives. Nevertheless, nature does seem to go upon this principle. Everybody does eat everybody up. Man eats birds, birds eat worms, and worms eat man again. It is a vicious cycle, yet, somehow or other, there is an increment. I begin to doubt the principle ex nihilo nihil fit. We very much want a way of getting something out of nothing and back into it again. Whether or no we ever shall get such a way, we see the clearly perceptible arising out of and returning into the absolutely imperceptible, and, so far as we are concerned, this is much the same thing to assume an unknowable substratum as the source from which all things proceed or are evolved is equivalent to assuming that they come up out of nothing. For that which does not exist for us is for us nothing. That which we do not know does not exist qua us, and therefore it does not exist. When I say we, I mean mankind in general, for things may exist qua one man and not qua another. And when I say nothing, I postulate something of which we have no experience. And yet, we cannot say that a thing does not exist till it is known to exist. The planet Neptune existed, though, qua us, it did not exist before Adams and Leveria discovered it. And we cannot hold that its continued non-existence to my laundress and her husband makes it any the less an entity. We cannot say that it did not exist at all till it was discovered, that it exists only partially and vaguely to most of us, that to many it still does not exist at all, that there are few to whom it even exists in any force or fullness, and none who can realize more than the broad facts of its existence. Neptune has been disturbing the orbits of the planets nearest to him for more centuries than we can reckon, and whether or not he is known to have been doing so has nothing to do with the matter. If A is robbed, he is robbed, whether he knows it or not. In one sense, then, we cannot say that the planet Neptune did not exist till he was discovered, but in another we can and ought to do so. De non apparentibus ex non extentibus edem est ratio. As long, therefore, as Neptune did not appear, he did not exist qua us. The only way out of it 
is through the contradiction in terms of maintaining that a thing exists and does not exist at one and the same time. So, A may be both robbed and not robbed. We consider, therefore, that things have assumed their present shape by course of evolution from a something which, qua us, is a nothing, from a potential something but not an actual, from an actual nothing but a potential not nothing, from a nothing which might become a something to us with any modification on our parts, but which, till such modification has arisen, does not exist in relation to us, though very conceivably doing so in relation to other entities. But this protean nothing, capable of appearing as something, is not the absolute, eternal, unchangeable nothing that we mean when we say ex nihilo nihil fit. The alternative is that something should not have come out of nothing, and this is saying that something has always existed. But the eternal increateness of matter seems as troublesome to conceive as its having been created out of nothing. I say seems, for I am not sure how far it really is so. We never saw something come out of nothing, that is to say, we never saw a beginning of anything except as the beginning of a new phase of something pre-existent. We ought therefore to find the notion of eternal being familiar. It ought to be the only conception of matter which we are able to form. Nevertheless, we are so carried away by being accustomed to see phases have their beginnings and endings that we forget that the matter of which we see the phase begin and end did not begin or end with the phase. Eternal matter permeated by eternal mind, matter and mind being functions of one another, is the least uncomfortable way of looking at the universe. But as it is beyond our comprehension, and cannot therefore be comfortable, sensible persons will not look at the universe at all, except in such details as may concern them. Contradiction in Terms we pay higher and higher in proportion to the service rendered, till we get to the highest services, such as becoming a member of Parliament. And this must not be paid at all. If a man would go yet higher, and found a new and permanent system, or create some new idea or work of art which remains to give delight to ages, he must not only not be paid, but he will have to pay very heavily out of his own pocket into the bargain. Again, we are to get all men to speak well of us if we can, yet we are to be cursed if all men speak well of us. So, when the universe has gathered itself into a single ball, which I don't for a moment believe it ever will, but I don't care, it will no sooner have done so than the bubble will burst and it will go back to its gases again. Contradiction in terms is so omnipresent that we treat it as we treat death or free will, or fate, or air, or God, or the devil, taking these things so much as matters of course that, though they are visible enough if we choose to see them, we neglect them normally altogether, without for a moment intending to deny their existence. This neglect is convenient as preventing repetitions the monotony of which would defeat their own purpose, but people are tempted nevertheless to forget the underlying omnipresence in the superficial omniabsence. They forget that its opposite lurks in everything, that there are harmonics of God in the devil, and harmonics of the devil in God. Contradiction in terms is not only to be excused, 
but there can be no proposition which does not more or less involve one. It is the fact of there being contradictions in terms which have to be smoothed away and fused into harmonious acquiescence with their surroundings that makes life and consciousness possible at all, unless the unexpected were sprung upon us continually to enliven us, we should pass life, as it were, in sleep. To a living being, no, it is, can be absolute. Wherever there is an is, there among its harmonics lurks an is-not. When there is absolute absence of is-not, the is goes too. And the is-not does not go completely till the is is gone along with it. Every proposition has got a skeleton in its cupboard. Extremes 1. Intuition and evidence seem to have something of the same relation that faith and reason, luck and cunning, free will and necessity, and demand and supply have. They grow up hand in hand, and no man can say which comes first. It is the same with life and death which lurk one within the other, as do rest and unrest, change and persistence, heat and cold, poverty and riches, harmony and counterpoint, night and day, summer and winter. And so, with pantheism and atheism, loving everybody is loving nobody, and God everywhere is, practically, God nowhere. I once asked a man if he was a freethinker. He replied that he did not think he was. And so, I have heard of a man exclaiming, I am an atheist, thank God. Those who say there is a God are wrong unless they mean at the same time that there is no God, and vice versa. The difference is the same as that between plus nothing and minus nothing, and it is hard to say which we ought to admire and thank more, the first theist or the first atheist. Nevertheless, for many reasons, the plus nothing is to be preferred. 2. To be poor is to be contemptible, to be very poor is worse still, and so on, but to be actually at the point of death through poverty is to be sublime. So, when weakness is uttered, honor ceaseth. The Righteous Man, page 390, post. 3. The meeting of extremes is never clearer than in the case of moral and intellectual strength and weakness. We may say with Hesiod, how much the half is greater than the whole, or, with St. Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. They come to much the same thing. We all know strength so strong as to be weaker than weakness, and weakness so great as to be stronger than strength. 4. The Queen travels as the Countess of Balmoral, and would probably be very glad, if she could, to travel as plain Miss Smith. There is a good deal of the Queen lurking in every Miss Smith, and, conversely, a good deal of Miss Smith lurking in every Queen. Free Will and Necessity As I am tidying up, and the following beginning of a paper on the above subject has been littering about my table since December 1889, which is the date on the top of page 1, I will shoot it on to this dust heap and bury it out of my sight. It runs. The Difficulty has arisen from our forgetting that contradiction in terms lies at the foundation of all our thoughts as a condition and sine qua non of our being able to think at all. 
we imagine that we must either have all free will and no necessity, or all necessity and no free will. And, it being obvious that our free will is often overridden by force of circumstances, while the evidence that necessity is overridden by free will is harder to find, if indeed it can be found, for I have not fully considered the matter, most people who theorize upon this question will deny in theory that there is any free will at all, though in practice they take care to act as if there was. For if we admit that like causes are followed by like effects, and everything that we do is based upon this hypothesis, it follows that every combination of causes must have some one consequent which can alone follow it, and which free will cannot touch. Yes, but it will generally be found that free will entered into the original combination, and the repetition of the combination will not be exact unless a like free will is repeated along with all the other factors, from which it follows that free will is apparent only, in that, as I said years ago in Erewhon, we are not free to choose what seems best on each occasion, but bound to do so, being fettered to the freedom of our wills throughout our lives. But to deny free will is to deny moral responsibility, and we are landed in absurdity at once, for there is nothing more patent than that moral responsibility exists. Nevertheless, at first sight, it would seem as though we ought not to hang a man for murder if there was no escape for him but that he must commit one. Of course, the answer to one who makes this objection is that our hanging him is as much a matter of necessity as his committing the murder. If, again, necessity, as involved in the certainty that like combinations will be followed by like consequence, is a basis on which all our actions are founded, so also is free will. This is quite as much a sine qua non for action as necessity is, for who would try to act if he did not think that his trying would influence the result? We have therefore two apparent incompatible and mutually destructive faiths, each equally and self-evidently demonstrable, each equally necessary for salvation of any kind, and each equally entering into every thought and action of our whole lives, yet utterly contradictory and irreconcilable. Can any dilemma seem more hopeless? It is not a case of being able to live happily with either, were t'other, dear charmer away. It is indispensable that we should embrace both, and embrace them with equal cordiality at the same time, though each annihilates the other. It is as though it were indispensable to our existence to be equally dead and equally alive at one and the same moment. Here, we have an illustration which may help us. For, after all, we are both dead and alive at one and the same moment. There is no life without a taint of death and no death that is not instinct with the residuum of past life and with germs of the new that is to succeed it. Let those who deny this show us an example of pure life and pure death. Anyone who has considered these matters will know this to be impossible. And yet, in spite of this, the cases where we are in doubt whether a thing is to be more fitly called dead or alive are so few that they may be disregarded. I take it, then, that as, though alive, we are in part dead, and though dead, in part alive, so, though bound by necessity, we are in part free, 
and though free, yet in part bound by necessity. At least, I can think of no case of such absolute necessity in human affairs as that free will should have no part in it, nor of such absolute free will that no part of the action should be limited and controlled by necessity. Thus, when a man walks to the gallows, he is under large necessity, yet he retains much small freedom. When pinioned, he is less free, but he can open his eyes and mouth and pray aloud or no, as he pleases, even when the drop has fallen, so long as he is he at all, he can exercise some, though infinitely small, choice. It may be answered that, throughout the foregoing chain of actions, the freedom, what little there is of it, is apparent only, and that even in the small freedoms, which are not so obviously controlled by necessity, the necessity is still present as effectually as when the man, though apparently free to walk to the gallows, is in reality bound to do so. For in respect of the small details of his manner of walking to the gallows, which compulsion does not so glaringly reach, what is it that the man is free to do? He is free to do as he likes, but he is not free to do as he does not like, and a man's likings are determined by outside things and by antecedents, prenatal and postnatal, whose effect is so powerful that the individual who makes the choice proves to be only the resultant of certain forces which have been brought to bear upon him, but which are not the man. So, that it seems there is no detail, no nook or corner of action into which necessity does not penetrate. This seems logical, but it is as logical to follow instinct and common sense as to follow logic, and both instinct and common sense assure us that there is no nook or corner of action into which free will does not penetrate, unless it be those into which mind does not enter at all as when a man is struck by lightning or is overwhelmed suddenly by an avalanche. Besides, those who maintain that action is bound to follow choice, while choice can only follow opinion as to advantage, neglect the very considerable number of cases in which opinion as to advantage does not exist, when, for instance, a man feels, as we all of us sometimes do, that he is utterly incapable of forming any opinion whatever as to his most advantageous course. But this again is fallacious, for suppose he decides to toss up and be guided by the result. This is still what he has chosen to do, and his action, therefore, is following his choice. Or suppose again that he remains passive and does nothing. His passivity is his choice. I can see no way out of it unless either frankly to admit that contradiction in terms is the bedrock on which all our thoughts and deeds are founded, and to acquiesce cheerfully in the fact that whenever we try to go below the surface of any inquiry, we find ourselves utterly baffled, or to redefine freedom and necessity, admitting each as a potent factor of the other. And this I do not see my way to doing. I am therefore necessitated to choose freely the admission that our understanding can burrow but a very small way into the foundations of our beliefs, and can only weaken rather than strengthen them by burrowing at all. End of section 26